Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome back, lovely listeners, to another episode of the Three Little Things podcast. We are jumping into a two-part series, and I just wanted to pop a little disclaimer at the front of this one. It is a pretty long two-part series. Um, Both episodes go for over an hour, but there was no logical place to cut them or edit them, and the wisdom and the knowledge that Jules uh, gives in these episodes was just second to none, so we decided to run with them being two slightly longer episodes. I also wanted to pop, or we wanted to pop a little disclaimer at the, at the front of this episode. We had Jules back, who you would have heard in season two. She's a wonderful psychologist that deals in the area of trauma. And in this episode, we unpack and we talk a lot about codependency. And we start talking about things like addiction or addictive sort of behaviors. And um, I know, or we know, that these topics can be quite triggering for some people. So if this is an episode or two-part episode that you feel like might be too much for you right now, then please jump on and listen to one of our other episodes that might be more suitable to you at this time. Alrighty guys, welcome back to another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined as always by my co-host Lily and we are back with Jules. Jules was a very popular episode um, back in last season. She was the first episode of season two actually, um, which was really fun and so we've actually got Jules back um, by popular demand. We've had lots of people request you to come back, Jules. And a really exciting episode, so we're super excited for this one. Um, but I guess, Lily, did you want to sort of intro the episode a little bit and kind of set, mm. the, set the scene for what we're going to chat about today? Yeah, so to reiterate, Jules' first episode was on trauma, um, childhood trauma, big T's, little T's. And I'm really pleased that we were able to do this because I think a lot of mothers and fathers of young children, are, you know, they would definitely benefit from it. And I found myself listening to Jules thinking, damn, I wish I had known that 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so many apologies to the kids. <laughs> but I mean, since we began our podcast um, late last year, we're really pleased to see a lot of people um, giving us feedback regarding us being able to step in that space where it's semi-nerdy, but not too nerdy, and bring words like... Um, bringing words into everyday use which we felt were quite important so Jules brought up the word amygdala um, we have used the words cerebellum a lot vestibular system uh, sympathetic nervous system autonomics um, parasympathetic nervous system vagal tone upregulate downregulate even homunculus so we we like this space because we can dive deep use good quality scientific words and um, heavy research but make them very user friendly and hopefully a bit uplifting actually Mm. Mm. yeah amazing well um, I guess that sort of nicely frames that people should go back and listen to that episode before they jump into this one Um, but Jules I guess you want to just give us a brief little rundown of who you are um, and then we can jump into today's episode yeah for sure Um, yeah so my name is Julie Preston and I'm a registered psychologist here on the northern beaches and uh, my area of interest is in uh, trauma particularly childhood trauma and codependency I also work with addictions and eating disorders and depression and anxiety Um, yeah that's me yeah awesome Um, and that again kind of 
puts us into the space that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about codependency. Mm-hmm. Big topic. Huge. Really exciting <laughs> topic and something that I know you're very passionate about um, and very excited to share with us. So yes. kick us off. What is codependency? Yeah, cool. Well, I think it. Um, I'm glad you brought up the last um, episode because it follows really nicely because um, we did talk, oh, I talked a lot about trauma, particularly childhood trauma and how it impacts us. And this is a really good follow on from that because codependency is something that um, is uh, builds in childhood, particularly from our less than nurturing experiences. Um, and it is something that is so dear to my heart, um, you know, learning about codependency and how to recover from codependency um, was such had such a big impact on me, not just professionally, but um, I, uh, you know, on a personal level too. I put my hand up. I'm a, a fellow um, codependent in recovery, as I like to say, or like they say in the 12-step program, which is called CODA for Codependency Anonymous. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I think it's so important because as human beings, we are hardwired for human connection. You know, we're meant to live in our tribes, in our communities. And so when relationships don't go well, um, it can have really devastating impacts on us. Um, it can um, cause a lot of pain, a lot of disconnection. And did you know that having healthy relationships can also mean that you are physically healthy um, as well? Um, I'm not sure if you guys heard of this study, but they did a study um, it was quite some time ago now. It was the longest study on health and happiness. Um, and it's, it was a Harvard study. They took 50 men from Harvard. Um, two of them actually ended up being presidents because it, mm. it was Harvard mm-hmm. after all. And um, they followed them and their kids and their grandchildren as well. And um, do you know what the number one predictor of health and happiness was? Mm. What? No? It was the quality of their closest relationships. Mm. So they found that these people who had good quality relationships with those people who they're closest with um, actually um, had better health out- outcomes, had less diseases, lived longer, were on less medications, and were happier. Yeah, and wow. yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? Like it's. Um, so there's something to be said there. They've actually like found other studies that have complemented that as well, like the island of Sardinia, where they have like 10 times more centurions than um, North America because of their emphasis on close relationships and face-to-face interactions. And Mm -hmm. um, there was another study which said having being socially isolated is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So um, hopefully that motivates everyone to want to kind of look at their relationships and um, look at any um, codependency that might be stopping them from having maybe um, you know, a better relationship. So mm, that's, that's incredible. And also, um, a bit sort of shocking, you know, mm. to a much older person because we can't unwind the past. I mean, mm. um, how the past sits is the way the past sits. Do you mean we can help ourselves reframe, um, what actually happened, um, in our close relationships? Because we're talking about, say, um, mum and dad really aren't we and um, hmm. siblings is that what you're talking about the close relationships or oh well it's it's your closest relationships in your life now so mm-hmm. yeah we can't um, undo what's happened but we can certainly unlearn some of these codependent behaviors which are a consequence of those relationships with mum and dad so what we could you know codependency um, 
is learnt in childhood in order to survive what was going on in childhood, not just in the family home, but also, you know, our experiences in society and in our culture. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit more specifically about um, how each of the symptoms of codependency can evolve. Um, the problem is the very thing that helped us survive our childhood is the very thing that can get away of us having healthy functional relationships. So whilst we can't turn back the hands of time, we can unlearn some of these codependency um, behaviors and traits and, and relearn what we call um, in recovery, reparent ourselves. So give ourselves what we didn't, you know, parents are imperfect, right? And you know, we make mistakes and, um, and we do the best that we can with the tools that we have. And, um, you know, I really feel like most parents have the best intentions, but they can't protect us from everything. They will parent reflecting on the way they were parented. Um, and um, once we learn about this and learn about some more healthier ways to do relationships and what might be driving them, then we can do something about it. Um, so, you know, and then I think I talked about in the, my, the first podcast is our brain changes until the day we die. So we can you know, constantly be making changes um, internally as well as, you know, in our behaviours too. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up because um, <laughs> Anthony, who you know, my husband, um, we're talking about, you know, Jules is going to give us a interview on codependency. And he said, that's great. You know, I mean, that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, Anthony, yeah. um, maybe not, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe you could talk to that. Oh, no, I, well, I, I, you know, I don't think he's alone in that because I feel like um, so much of kind of what's in psychology is thrown into this like pop psychology in the mainstream kind of vernacular almost. And because it's um, thrown out there, there's often a lot of misconceptions about certain things um that are you know psychological terms so you know um, you might see two people holding hands or you know looking very in love and you go oh they're so codependent and um that's not exactly what it is um you know being a, too dependent on others can be a form of codependency but it can also be the opposite it can be people who are really avoidant um in relationships but um yeah so hopefully i'll dispel some of the misconceptions out there and give um People have better understanding on what it is. Um, yeah. So the diagnosis? I mean, how, yeah. Yeah, so it's actually not a diagnosis. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, um, I think they try to get it into um, the diagnostic yeah. statistics yes, manual, yes, which is yes. what psychologists go mm -hmm. by, and they didn't get it through. But I think it's because it's so general and it's mm -hmm. so broad, um, and it's, it would be really hard to get it in. Um, so I actually didn't learn about codependency in my training. I learned it at a treatment center, um, which had addiction, but it also um, had it uh, the model of codependency as their model um, by Pia Melody. Who oh, is? Yeah. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. John is it John Bradbury and Pia Melody? Yeah, yes. John Bradshaw. Bradshaw. Yeah, they, yeah, they were from yeah. the same. They worked uh, together in the same clinic in Arizona in America, right. which is where she developed yeah. that um, that model. And her model really resonated for me. Um, and there's lots of different, you know, thought leaders in this area. But I, you know, her one okay, is so, what I'm trained in. So for our audience, is it, is it easier to describe a typical? set up or is it better if you do it a different way how would you describe codependency as we might see it then um yeah so it's i, I think it will become clearer um as i talk about the five symptoms of codependency okay. but um i think it's also good just to give a little bit of a history if that's all right with you guys oh, yeah, please 
Because I think um, one of the reasons is also another reason why there's a lot of misconceptions about it. It's because the meanings evolved over time. And um, it was initially um, uh, referred to as somebody who's in relationship with, with an alcoholic or someone mm-hmm. in addiction. And that's where it came from. It actually came from like through AA, so through Alcoholics Anonymous initially. Um, so Dr. Bob and Bill W who started, um, AA, um, you know, and he noticed it was at that time, it was men only, mm-hmm. um, meetings, but he saw outside of the meetings in the car, um, were all the partners, you know, waiting to pick up, um, their, their spouses or their partners from the meetings and the family members. And they thought these guys really need some support too, because, um, what they discovered is that they were in a lot of pain too, the partners, not just the alcoholics. Mm. They were, um, and were suffering with mental health issues and um, quite dysfunctional behaviours. So they started Al-Anon, which is the 12-step meeting for um, family members of alcoholics. And um, so some of the things um, that they found that these partners or family members of the alcoholics were doing is they were suffering with really low self-esteem. Um, they're often seeking validation from other people constantly. Um, they were completely obsessed and overly focused on the needs and the wants and the feelings of the alcoholic to the point where they um, completely self-sacrificed their own needs and wants and would often be really burnt out and, and resentful um, eventually as well. Um, yeah, and just trying to change and try to fix them and working so hard to do so. And in all of that, for being so overly focused um, on the other person, is that lose their sense of self completely. In fact, um, there, was a, there was a bit of a codependent joke that I heard at a codependent anonymous <laughs> meeting, if you're slightly inappropriate, but I feel like I'm allowed to say it because I identify as codependent. Um, so um so what happened when the codependent died okay <laughs> someone's else life flashed before their eyes oh. and i think that like really kind of encapsulates what's what's going on for them um so i'm not going to mansplain that joke for you because i think i made the point earlier but yeah they just completely um lose track of themselves and um, focus on somebody else so mm. so heavily um, yeah, that's so subtle because um, it's almost like a very coercive love, isn't it? I love you so much that I've put my whole life on hold so that you can get better. Mm. But it's it's like a martyrdom almost, isn't it? It's Well, that is it. Mm. It's, it is a total martyrdom. Um, and the codependent, you know, is trying to control the alcoholic mm. to get better. Well, they'd actually even like sometimes go to the pub and go drinking with them in the hope that maybe they'll drink less mm. or they'd run out and go buy alcohol. So the, so the alcoholic would buy less, but you know, these behaviors end up inadvertently being really enabling yeah. and disempowering. They'd also call up the boss and make excuses while they didn't turn, turn up for work or over function in the relationship by taking care of all like the children by themselves and getting a second job or um which you know would actually have very negative impact impact mm. on the alcohol they actually under function more while the codependent is over functioning um mm. and so when they started treatment centers for addiction 
um, they started to realize that in order for the persons struggling with um, an addiction, so they used to call them chemical dependence, um, is that they have to treat the family, they have yeah. to treat the partner in order for full recovery to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started calling um, the partners or their family members co-chemical dependence or co-alcoholics and obviously co-chemical dependence it's a bit of a mouthful so they abbreviated it to codependence and that's where we have the word for it mm. um however they found that you don't need to have someone struggling with an addiction for that to happen mm. so any kind of um a family system where there is dysfunction you can have the same codependent behaviors play out so anyone struggling with a mental health illness um if there's a narcissist which is also a mental health is you know illness in itself but that's a really what that's a big one for codependency um anyone with chronic health issues like physical mm-hmm. health issues or, or disability anywhere where the resources are stretched or where one person's over functioning and, and the other is a severely under functioning for whatever reason um, you can have these codependent behaviours kind of play out. Mm, very interesting. It's like a huge theme where variations branch off. Mm, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we can all think of Munchausen's or Munchausen's yep. by proxy. Mm-hmm. You know, all those um, other situations where we want to be wanted. You mm. know, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well. Um, yeah, I think sometimes, uh, and it's depending on what your what your um, stuff is, what your tra- childhood trauma is. But you know, sometimes. Um, you know, as a child, the only time that you were kind of given praise or love was when you were being really helpful. Mm -hmm. And so rather than, you know, being loved, they settle for being needed. Mm -hmm. And, and I think subconsciously, some codependents set this up that if you need me, then you won't leave me. You know, that if I get you so dependent on me, it's not a conscious thing. They're not bad. You know, we're not bad people. Um, But, you know, if I can get you to be reliant on me enough, then I can get you to stick around or you won't reject me. Mm. Um, Interesting thing about trauma is uh, the fear that we, the thing we fear the most is that that has already happened. So if we were abandoned as a child, our biggest fear will be abandoned in our relationships. If we were rejected, we'll fear being rejected. Um, and yeah. so on. It always happened already, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, it is very interesting. And very triggering for a lot of people who are listening now, I would bet. Oh, yes. Yeah. I meant to put in a trigger warning, I'm sorry. <laughs> we can put it in the beginning, yeah. I can, no, no, I mean, this is the whole point about doing a sort of deep dive into what you know so well. Which yeah. Is really not holding back, but um, and people who listen to our podcasts yes. are used to us they are. going yeah. quite into. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are. Mm-hmm. But in so doing, to to learn and yeah. to 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 benefit, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Mm. Hmm. So, what about for a younger person? Do you feel this is something that you can relate to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And like I, I, I could be totally wrong here, but I, I do feel like there's probably elements in it, you know, that are more subtle than others. Yeah. Um, and like as you said, you know, in history, it started obviously with addiction and partners who were addicted to whatever. Um, but obviously that's, yeah, it's probably gone a bit broader than that now, right? And it's not only addiction, but it's yeah. in all sorts of relationships. So, for yeah, sure. from, from my perspective, I think there's probably elements in of codependency in, in a lot of relationships and a lot of connections. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, a lot of uh, codependents gravitate to um, 
those kind of professions where we mm. care, mm. Um, like healthcare professionals. Um, yeah. Want to be wanted. Yeah, yeah. want to be wanted. Need and it's, we're also yeah. really good at taking care of other people. Yeah. Mm. So um, often to our own demise, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so absolutely. Mm. So is there anything good about codependency? <laughs> no. Well, uh, the same, you know, codependency helped you survive childhood. So yeah. in, in that way, if you didn't develop those codependent behaviours, um, then you might not have survived. So in that way, it is good. Um, you know, it's so great how adaptive children are, how, mm. how they have such amazing ability to survive. Um, so without it, things might have been a lot worse off. So um, in that way, it's good. Um, it's just when it gets in the way of us being able to have healthy adult relationships and, um, you know, have Yeah, you need a handbook, life. don't you? I mean, don't you think? I mean, there should be a handbook of, or a manual on child rearing. <laughs> there should, but that's, and um, we talked about this and some of the stuff you've talked about, Jules, reminds me of the episode we did with Matt a that's couple true. of episodes ago, yes. right? And we talked about connections and communities and tribes mm -hmm. and that's the whole point is that it takes a village it right? yes it and i think we we hear that all the time it takes a village to raise a child but um or you know a family but i think it also takes a village to nurture a relationship and i think like that's my opinion of it anyway um and you know so if you know if i think of my situation and my relationship well i have lots of other couple friends and we all hang out together and we all you know i went on a girls weekend over the weekend and we were all talking about our partners and our relationships and stuff like that. So I, I think the same applies to that. You know, it mm. takes a village. So that, I think, is your handbook. Yeah. The tribe and the community yeah. and the connections that you've got around you. Mm -hmm. Yep. And maybe not so much owners. Well, that's mm. this whole, yep. that was a whole Matt thing too. It was, um, I'm not sure whether you heard Matt's podcast. On, I did. Yeah. yeah. Interesting on, you know, it wasn't just about dying. It was actually about living, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And attachment. Um, as I'm not sure whether because you guys are in sort of new-ish relationships I mean for me my my partner and I we're more tolerable to each other when there are other people around like you've got to have dinner you know actually it's more fun when there's say two other couples when it's just the two of us but we have been together for 38 years let's face it um, but I'm just trying to figure out at a child level when approximately there's a codependency you know, is there like a should stop mm. button or begin to to fade a little bit from um, primary caregivers? Do you know what I mean? I mean, you're saying that it is a survival thing, so mm -hmm. it's good in the beginning because the child's immobile. It it's it needs to feed off someone. You know, yep. it has to. It can't walk yet. Mm -hmm. And as uh, Matt said, it takes a long time to grow a human child. Yeah. Um, at what point should a child begin to separate and, and not need this sort of um, relationship? Um, gosh, that's a really good question that no one's asked me before. And I think, um, so when we look at like um, individuating from our family, and, mm. I, and this is like, love you know, word. Yeah. yeah, love it, love it. And I think, mm. you know, what we do is, you know, particularly those um, primary years, mm. um, we are so heavily reliant on our family. And then we go to school and we start to, you know, that's when we start to worry more what our peers think about us. And we get a bit more self-conscious around our peers. And we, we tend to, you know, make those slow individuations. Is, I'm not sure if that's a word, but um, from our family in that way. Way, and we tend to lean more and more on our peers and you know kind of <laughs> disregard our parents a little bit more and that's actually really healthy mm. um, so and I guess uh, when should we step out of our codependency is probably when um, you know it's safe for us to leave um, mm. 
or um, I mean that would be that would be ideal Mm. Um, Mm. but you know if we if we start if we've got a raging narcissist from a family uh, in the family system and um, and we stop and I'll talk about this a little bit we stop appeasing them and placating them too soon you know that will probably not end very well you know um because that keeps us safe those kind Mm. of you know they say codependency is the disease to please that's one of the reasons it's a safety thing to to go in and please um someone who's chaotic and unpredictable um that keeps us safe so we Mm. don't want to be doing that if we're going to be in harm's way Mm. i like the word um individual what, what was that? Individuate. Individuate. That's a great word. Let's use yeah. that. Um, because it sounds like um, school is that logical rhythm, you know, whether it's preschool or school. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like if the child is pretty self-assured or has enough self-esteem from not to five or whatever, arbitrarily, mm-hmm. that child can then um, individuate a little bit more easily because he or she goes to school thinking, well, I'm okay. You know, mm-hmm. I've been brought up as an okay person. So now I'm in the playground and if I'm being bullied, is is the volume of okayness the child is so okay mm-hmm. that a little bit of bad okay bad not okay yeah. isn't going to water down the child's sense of self right yeah yeah, yeah. so so perhaps as you say that's a like that's a lovely little rhythm you know when the child begins to go to mm-hmm. you know, formal school mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I think it's also like just adding on to that I hope I'm right on this one um, but around seven is when we start to learn critical thinking a little bit so zero to seven you can tell a child yeah. you know terrible things about them and they're going to take it all on, all on on true particularly if, if you're their parents because um, you know, they're going to trust you. They, they look at their parents like their parents are God mm, in many yeah. ways. And when they start to learn critical thinking, like, oh, maybe that's not true, you know, um, that's where um, they can start to filter out some of the things that, that mm. doesn't fit in line with their own concept yeah. of self. Now, if your concept of self is I'm worthless and then mm. you get bullied on the playground, you're like, yeah, fair enough, I deserve that, I am worthless, you know? like. Yeah. Um, so if you already have that kind of sense of being valuable, yeah. um, it's going to be easier Interesting, because I mean, one of our episodes we discussed brain waves, didn't we? Yes. And we yeah. discussed theta, sort of theta yeah. brain waves, which are really um, um, dominant in a child between naught and seven. And theta brain waves are very uh, hypnotic. Yeah. So the child from naught to seven generally hears everything um, in a very unfiltered manner. So if we call a child mm. um, clumsy, you know, or naughty or whatever, that, that just goes straight into the child's memory, hippocampus, mm-hmm. and that's the child's identity. Yep. So as you say, around seven, they can then critically re-evaluate mm. all that. But um, if they've been programmed, if the operating system is one of being clumsy or naughty or dirty, whatever, it's going to be hard to, you know, rewire all that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So maybe we should help parents um, from a very early age to to use those words sparingly or not at all. Yeah. Uh, because do kids get irony, you know, <laughs> or mm. sarcasm? Because, you know, you know, you, I mean, I have parents who come to the practice calling their kids, yeah, they're all drongo, mm. thinking it's kind of cute. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think... I think they do get tone because I yeah. have little jokes with my child. Oh, I think yeah. and she gets it. Like when Chum, I pretend yeah. that I've eaten her chocolate Easter egg or something, but yeah. she can tell by my tone and my yes. twinkle in my eye that I'm joking or something. Good. So I feel like I feel like they they're pretty kind of good with the yeah. non-verbals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in that way. But if you've had Botox, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe. You yeah. know, because those nuances are gone, aren't they? Like, mommy mm-hmm. happy, mommy sad, um, okay. <laughs> Does your face want to change anytime soon? No, mm-hmm. but that's, thank you, that's great. So, um, nuances, um, mm-hmm. you know, playful, use those words yeah. in context. Yeah, and yeah. the, like, you know, mm-hmm. inflections in your voice, you Not know, like, kids are very receptive to that. Yeah. So, okay. um, yes. Cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, you kind of touched on it before, Jules, but you said that there are five core symptoms of codependency. Yes. Um, so they are, yeah, there's the five core symptoms of codependency. So what I was going to do is I was going to just go through those five core symptoms um, and for each of those five core symptoms, how they're, um, what that looks like, how it's set up in childhood. Like, so mm. how, I'll give you some potential examples of how that, that can be set up. It's certainly not an exhaustive list. Yeah. Um, um, and what, and just a few little tips on how to recover from each of those core symptoms. Yeah, right. Um, so the first one, and we might have already just briefly touched on it, but the first one is that codependents have difficulty expressing healthy levels of self-esteem. So, <laughs> self-esteem, mm. big one. Big one. Um, yeah. Maybe that's why it's first. Um, so we are all inherently valuable. We are all born in this to this world of equal value. Okay, so um, no one's born more valuable and no one's born less valuable. It doesn't matter if you were born into royalty or in the slums of India, you know, wealth, fame, all of that. That doesn't actually change your value as a person. And you're valuable just because you are. So think of, um, you know, a baby that's born into this world. It doesn't do much. It doesn't have any money. It can, like, poop and cry and and feed and that's about it but you look at it and it's so precious it's so valuable um just because they are and self-esteem is that awareness of your own preciousness of your own value and you're acknowledging that we are of all equal value so um yeah so we're able to see that from within but what codependents have difficulty with is that acknowledgement of that we're all equal value so what they'll either do is feel less than others so worthless, less than, or swing to the other extreme, excuse me, and feel better than others. Mm. Or they'll do both. They'll swing from one to the other. Um, so how this can be, um, how this can be set up in childhood is, you know, we'll go back to that baby. In order for that baby to then um, maintain that you know feel valuable as an adult or to grow up feeling valuable um that child needs to be valued by the caregivers around them in order to internalize that sense of value um and bare minimum that child needs time attention and direction right we need a a parent to spend time with us and to play with us and give us lots of be mindful with us Mm um so, but if we had a parent who um, maybe abandoned us, and that can be through death, so through no fault of anyone, or we just had parents who just weren't available maybe emotionally or had to work a lot yeah. um, in order to pay the bills, um, you know, and in these nuclear families, this can happen quite often because we don't always have grandma and granddad and aunties yeah. and uncles, mm. which are how I feel it should be, mm. um, around to kind of compensate for that. Um, so this, this is a tough one. Um, other ways that can go wrong. Um, so yeah, in, in, a, in a situation where there's not a lot of um, time and resources for the children available, um, if we had a parent who put us down and criticized us a lot, mm. maybe had unrelenting standards for us, 
um, you know, that child can feel less than or worthless. Um, where there's abuse, so physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, that can all um, create a sense of feeling less than others. You know, children don't realise when they're being abused, you know, they're very egocentric. They tend to blame themselves. They don't go, mum and dad are being inappropriate, or mm. this caregiver, or this yep. person's being inappropriate. They think bad things are happening to me because I'm bad, yep. or there's mm. something not okay with me. So all of this can develop a sense of feeling less than others. Um, another thing that can happen is a child that's excessively shamed by their parent protects themselves from feeling inferior by um, putting down others, mm. Mm. pretending to be superior, feeling like others are inferior for them. And that's like a defense against feeling less than. So I always say like the bully in the playground is most likely getting bullied at home. Mm. You know, they're, they're, anyone with a healthy sense of self um, doesn't need to put other people down to feel okay with themselves. Um, you know, think about probably the most famous narcissist there is Donald Trump you know he was severely bullied as a child I think by his dad and maybe his brothers um but you know he's in turn become quite a bully himself and as a consequence of that you know is bullied by everyone right you know by the media for sure um you know once again what we fear the most yeah self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy now you know um so the other way that inappropriate levels of self-esteem could get set up is if a child is overindulged. So mm -hmm. if a child is treated like they can never do wrong, yeah. mm -hmm. um, that child gets falsely empowered. And that's a little bit different to the one that is putting other people down because they can put down. This one actually actually feels they're better than. Mm -hmm. And that's their trauma. That's, that's actually quite abusive in itself. Um, and I have, you know, I've actually seen kids, um, I was actually at the playground not too long ago where um, one kid was bullying another kid and the parent, they had both parents there and the parent was doing nothing about their child's behavior. And the parent of the child who was getting bullied actually went to the other parents like, you know, are you gonna do something? Cause you know, they didn't want to, you know, step over a line and parent someone else's child. And, that parent was like, no, nah. and I don't know if that parent was having a bad day, but I just thought, oh, that's such a shame because that other kid who's getting bullied, she'll be fine. But that that little boy who's not getting appropriate boundaries put in place mm. and has been overindulged is going to have a lot of difficulties um, growing mm. up. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not a good thing. That child never learns um, healthy shame. So toxic shame is I'm worthless, I'm, who I am is not okay. Healthy shame um, it tells me I'm imperfect, I can make mistakes. It often comes with guilt, you know, yeah. if I've done something wrong um, and we're able to acknowledge our imperfections. So um, if you don't have that healthy shame, like we don't want to have toxic shame, but if we don't have that healthy shame, it tells me I can sometimes make mistakes and step over boundaries and things like that. We are gonna walk around being shameless and mm. completely boundaryless and um, have that real grandiosity about ourselves. And then will this, will this be drawing a long bow, but um, would the parents also be functioning like that in their own lives, I wonder? Sometimes. Mm. So sometimes the family system is, oh, we're the Joneses and everyone wants to be us and we're better than other people. Mm. But sometimes um, the, um, the family dynamic could be, 
maybe they were so severely punished yeah. as, mm, as children yeah. that they've overstepped. So what we can yeah. do from parents, if we're parenting from our wounds, we either do what our parents do or we do the extreme opposite. Now, the extreme opposite of dysfunction is dysfunction, right? <laughs> so we want, to, we want to find that middle line. Like, you know, um, feeling less than so we do the better than. We, would, we want to be in the middle. We want to be like, you know, we're all equal. We're seeing from within. Um, but unfortunately, until we do the work, mm-hmm. um, until we have that awareness of what we're doing is not great, um, then we might, you know, create that, you know, transgenerational trauma, either mm-hmm. do what our parents do or the extreme opposite. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Oh, big one. It it's is a big, big one. one. Thank you. That's actually very thorough. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? I mean... It could be a whole podcast on its own, actually. Well, yes. Actually, I did an hour lecture on each one of these core symptoms when I was working at the treatment center. So trying to reduce this has been so challenging. Um, We we might do that going forward. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Anyway, we'll we'll march through these and then we'll um, (laughs) beg Jules again. Okay. Mm. I'm easily persuaded to (laughs) to come do these podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so yes, that's, um, that's self-esteem. And just to add a couple of things, what, if, if a child doesn't have, um, healthy self-esteem, so they can't esteem from within, which is unvaluable just because I am, what they do is they look for something, external sources of esteem, what, what peer melody calls other esteem. So they'll be like super high achievers, you know, cause sometimes they you bring home an A and that was the one time they got praise. Or they will um, uh, obsess about how they look. So yeah. um, that's a that's something that's quite common in, more in females, but you know, men too. But um, you know, what we say is valuable in our society for women is if lots of people like you, if you're a good little caretaker, look at her, she's so selfish, she ripped the shirt off her own back and give it to you, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so and, and looks. So, um, oh, and getting everyone to like you, so popularity kind of thing. Mm. With men, it's more like success and wealth. Yeah. So, um, and what Pia Melody says is if we don't get these, um, what she calls primary symptoms or core symptoms um, under address, they can lead to secondary symptoms. So, mm. so these women who, um, or girls who grow up being, it's thinking that all their value is in their looks can develop eating disorders, for instance. Um, and men tend to be, and I worked a lot with uh, men who have difficulties with work addiction. So, because yeah. work addiction gives you so much other esteem, like, you know, you, it gives you wealth, it gives you like the pat on the back from your boss, it gives you status when you get promoted. So there's so many, so many sources of other esteem that you mm-hmm. can get. Um, you know, the problem with work addiction is that they often lose their families because they neglect their families and, um, you know, so the transgenerational transgener- trauma continues. Um, and what happens when you get made redundant or you're too old to work anymore and things like that, you know, is they mm-hmm. often um, get... Something left, yeah. Yeah, they get really depressed. Yeah. Um, so I've seen um, men um, who, who come either because they've lost their family or because they've been made redundant or they've had to be forced to resign mm-hmm. and they're not in a good place because <clears throat> they've never had that value from within, you know, mm-hmm. uh, value for, from within means that I can lose my job and I'm still just as valuable as I was yesterday. 
um, it's constant, right? As, yeah. as opposed to the external stuff, which makes me go up and down. Somebody got a better mark than me or someone's mm. prettier than me or this person doesn't like me. Um, you know, it makes your yeah. sense of self all over the place. Yeah, it's so externalized rather than, mm. yeah. I, mm-hmm. mean, I mean, because I'm a lot older, um, I do know a lot of, um, you know, adult men who, who do function like that. And when they when they can't get what they want, they become more of a bully because it's just um, a way of satisfying that lack of self-esteem, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, the pile gets higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm, interesting. Okay, yeah. great. So, so some tips on how to recover from, uh, you know, self uh, problems having healthy levels of self-esteem. Um, is learning to have um, self-compassion for yourself. You know, watch that talk, watch that inner critic. You know, if you're in the less than, um, it's, uh, yeah, you're going to be having this this very punishing inner critic that's um, going to be telling you off a lot. So just being really mindful of that self-talk and learning some self-compassion. You know, talk to yourself. You know, I say to my clients, um, if you talk to your friends the way that you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends um, left, would you? So why would you talk to yourself like that? Um, you should talk to yourself like you would your best friend or like you would a young child. Um, so that's, that's one of them. Um, and it can often feel like you're being quite grandiose. If you're coming from the less than and you're having healthy self-esteem for the first time, you can feel a bit grandiose. The better than going into healthy self-esteem feels quite humiliated at the mm. beginning because you're learning that healthy shame, that, that humility. Um, so that's something that you can work on and, um, yes, self-care as well. Self-care is the ultimate act of self-love. Every time you're looking after yourself, you're saying to yourself, I matter, I'm important. Um, even if you don't believe it, you know, while you're doing it, you know, that behavior is very Mm. reinforcing. So there are a couple of tips around Mm. self-esteem. I think because you've had five pillars, um, I think we're going to do, let's say, should we do two very sure. thoroughly and then we'll make um, a little logical break there and then our next episode will be um, Jules with the next three mm-hmm. um, and that way you can just discuss them at your leisure. So we'll just prime it for our audience now <laughs> that um, it might look like um, we have a little pause at the end of the second um, symptom yep. and then um, we will re jig it for the next sure. episode yeah yep. yeah then we don't have to miss out on anything because um i think you have <laughs> here's the material oh my gosh there's so much it was so hard to condense yeah, this yeah. so i was like oh yeah we don't really want to you know because, okay um, yeah um but just going back to your last episode which i thought was really interesting was um having a true um friend or a small group of very you know um genuine people mm. who can actually tell you that you are a bit grandiose you know because <laughs> i still self-reflection is not something that we are all skilled at mm. you know, i mean you know some people might say something and they don't know that they're being grandiose or or, or um self-deprecating whatever the, the words may be so do you still speak to that that we we need to have people around us who are able to tell us kindly yeah oh yes oh it's it's a hard one to hear from anyone i think um uh, having a support system and having healthy people in that support system is so important like um if you were particularly if you're in the lesson and you're in a relationship um where someone's constantly putting you down Mm -hmm. it's going to be very hard to recover from self-esteem because um every time you go home it's going to be undoing that work 
Um, so, you know, some, some people in recovery, um, and you know, I've had some of my clients, they have actually left their partners. Um, if the partner's willing to work with them on it, um, then, um, yeah, that's great. You know, um, sometimes both people go into therapy and then come together and do couples therapy afterwards. But, um, yeah, having those people that are really supportive. I know in my recovery from codependency, I actually had to let go of a few relationships. Um, on the same, on the same, uh, at the same time, I also, you know, had to have realistic expectations, you know, relationships are like two pieces of the puzzle. You know, one piece changes, the other one needs time to find a way to fit. If you're the one, you know, for instance, like me who kind of over functions and does everything from your friends and then all of a sudden you want your needs met, they need time to adjust, you mm-hmm. know, um, the shape of the puzzle pieces change and they need to work out how they're going to fit in with you. So you've also got to, you know, give them a little bit of time and understanding, around that but um yeah are you saying that um you actually um verbalize this or are they just like to spot it when something changes um i'd certainly spot it um i would i would certainly name it um like you know if i was talking about needs i'm like okay well um you know i'm just really you know working on trying to get my needs met in a relationship I, i take ownership that i don't ask for it enough um you know it'd be great if you know you could do this for me i would be you know most difficult appreciative of it um and if you've got somebody who's just not open to that then you know maybe they're not the right person for you to be in a relationship with um you know i definitely had a lot of one-way relationships um and i have to take responsibility for that because i created that in so many of my relationships but i also attracted the kind of people Mm. that under functioned so i Mm. could over function Mm. um okay so so being vulnerable enough to throw out that line and say um okay something's changing here for me yeah would you come on the change journey with me um and that's a very vulnerable statement to make because you know you are open to rejection then aren't we absolutely um, yes okay. um hence go and see our psychologist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, i'm serious because um I, I love all the things that we're talking about but i really feel um it's like going to see a chiropractor you know you can't fix your own you know nervous system you largely yes you can you know but you need an adjustment and likewise, I feel that um, we are talking about such amazing stuff, but we really need to book in and see something. What needs to be action yeah. on too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Education is one thing, but education is nothing without the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the same here. The information is is the starting point. And I think with what you were just saying then, Jules, about you know being able to verbalize it, I feel like that's probably part of the journey, right? That's part of the change mm-hmm. is being able to actually verbalize that, hey, I do this and I do take responsibility for it, but I'm changing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is vulnerable, but I think it's it's a good vulnerability. You, mm-hmm. I, think, I think someone probably needs to go through that mm. to be able to make those lasting changes. With, yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, vulnerability is a big piece of it too because, I mean, Brene Brown does so much great stuff mm, on vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a... Brene Brown evangelist actually um but yeah you know we do we do we do risk rejection you know um when we're being vulnerable and when we're asking for our needs to be met um some people might say no I'm not willing to do that and being able to hear that you know yeah. is um is, is part of the journey as well um mm. yeah and as you said we, you know you, you said something really poignant around um that we have to change things with our behaviors mm. there's a great thing they say in this 12-step group if nothing changes nothing changes yeah. like you can do all the marvelous work and then go back and just be the same you know behaviors and um and it's it won't change yeah and it's easy to do right when we're talking about relationships and Mm -hmm. 
talking about this sort of life stuff because it's easy to just kind of fall back into those default patterns and pathways too you know you go back into that relationship where you're still in that relationship it's kind of um I feel like it'd be quite easy for nothing to change yeah Um, yeah so it's yeah yeah absolutely um and it's hard and sometimes you need to do the foundation work like sometimes my clients come in and we're talking about stuff for ages and they're just not ready to do it and there's no value judgment there it's like when you're ready when those foundations are put in place when you believe that you're worthy enough and when you feel strong enough to be able to do this then you'll do it and they do it they always get to it eventually yeah um so yeah Mm. we should move to the next one i suppose (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right um Boundaries. Number two, yeah. Boundaries. Ah, this is my favorite um, core symptom in the world. I will teaching my clients boundaries. I was I wouldn't let anyone else do the boundaries lecture when I worked in the treatment center because um, it was my favorite because I think I really this is the thing I did the worst. It was the biggest part of my recovery uh, from from codependency because I sucked at it so much. Um, it, but it had the biggest impact. You know, if you can do boundaries, life gets easier for you. Life is easier when you can do boundaries. You no longer have that anxiety of feeling like other people have control because you can't say no to other people. Mm. Um, I was just thinking about uh, what kind of life example I will have. And a um, couple of them um, came up for me. One of the things, so I was the last one out of my friends to have a mobile phone and it was very uh, coordinated. It was very orchestrated not having a mobile phone because I didn't like the idea of people having access to me whenever I want because I fear that, you know, if they ask me out to do something or wanted me to do something for them, I couldn't say no. So you actually become really avoidant. If you can't do boundaries, you will do walls instead of boundaries. So I would just ignore, I wouldn't, you know, call people back um, from the, you know, the good old landline, which no one really has anymore, do they? Um, And I just didn't have a, a mobile phone deliberately, so I didn't have to say no. And my best friend at the time, so I was in university, so it wasn't like they could, you know, hit me up at school. Um, she bought me like that, the 51, the Nokia 5110, yeah. the brick phone. I'm yep. showing my age here. Um, but uh, she's like, you know, if you want to maintain this friendship, you've got to take this phone because we just can't get a hold of you. Um, and it was such a good thing that she did that, that, you know, I had to learn how to say no sometimes. And um, that came a lot later, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that showed a bit of true love there. Yeah. 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 She you so much, yeah. I feel like the no thing is very big. Mm. I feel like a lot of I am like that a little bit, Jules, um, and I'm getting a lot better at it. But saying oh. no, yeah, yeah, um, and I know for my dad, that's a big that was used to be a big a really big one for him too, right? right. So it's definitely okay. Two stories. So um, <laughs> yeah, when, when Archie was born, this is about you know 26 years ago. Um, Anthony came home with a big <laughs> box and said, oh, "I've got a surprise for you. It's a really lovely present." And Jasper, who was um, six, saw the box and he went, what is it? Condoms? It was a mobile phone. Okay. (laughs) That's one story. Anyway, the other story is that my friend had done, um, back in the day, um, a Money and You course, which is one of the Mm -hmm. self-growth courses, which was popular at the time, like Eston Forum. And she did learn to say no. But the thing is, she took it to the extreme. Mm. She said no whenever she mm. she could, just to For practice the, sake of it. Yeah. the ah. skill of saying no. So we were going, we were going out to restaurants, and 
as a matter of um, course, she would send the food back mm. just because she could. Oh my gosh. I know, it was a real pain in the ass. But anyway, um, in the end, it was like, okay, you've done the course now. We know you can say no yeah. <laughs> and send the food back. Can we just get on with the normal relationship, you know? So, you mm. know what I mean? You know, you can have a toy, but then overplay it. Totally. And, you know, if you can't say yes, then that's also dysfunctional. You know, going to the extreme, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you're putting up walls basically by not being able to say yes ever, even when you want to say yes. So that's the other extreme of dysfunction again. Um, So gosh, yeah. yeah. The bell curve is also, is is having enough self-awareness because, um, so just in the last few years, the words me time, Mm. that has suddenly bothered me a lot because because I go, okay, now it has a name even. It's (laughs) called me time and Curiously, there's a um, a salon in locally in DIY that's called itself me time. And I think <laughs> that's so cute because it's just playing on the idea of me time. Yeah. But that became very voguish, you know, about I'm just being an old person looking at, at um, young people trying to, you know, establish themselves. Mm. So I guess it's a matter of uh, self-reflection once again, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes, no, you know, boundaries, walls. Mm. It's pretty um, subjective too, can you say? Well, uh, boundaries in itself, I'm I'm not sure if I hope I got what you're saying here, but boundaries like are very specific to that person. Mm. So like what you're okay with, another person might not be okay with vice versa. Right, Um, right. Was that what you're saying? Sorry, I don't know. Yes, but then taking away the whole generosity moment too, Mm -hmm. because... People do do things which are uncomfortable for each other because it serves the purpose. You know, it helps the community get yeah. on with things. So, yeah. uh, say no. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we can't all say no. You know, some mm. people have to say yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, that's true. And sometimes, um, sometimes you will say yes to something that you don't want to do, as long as you and uh, you know we'll we'll get to this a little bit later, but. As long as you can ask yourself, this is a really good one for recovering from boundaries is, will I feel resentful if I say yes now and I really want to nice say one. no? Yes. And that's where you got to check in with yourself. If it's like, oh, I really don't want to go to that party, but it's really important for my friend. Will I feel resentful afterwards? No, because she'll do the same thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know when I get there, I'm going to have a good time. So I'm willing to be a little bit tired tomorrow. Um, Lovely. and go so yeah. that's a good question to ask and you're right you know sometimes we do things because we care about someone and we might not want to do it um it's just when we're um and this goes uh to uh our, you know our self-care again it's like if we're feeling burnt out mm-hmm. and exhausted and we really just can't you know dig any deeper you know that's when we want to be able to use those no's yeah um yeah. I had a question for you, Sarah. I was just really interested. You said about saying no was a really um, yeah. hard thing for you. I'm wondering what what it is about saying no that's difficult for you. Good question. Um, I think I think it used to be about pleasing people. I think that's probably where it started, and that was sort of more high, like high school, like when I was sort of a lot younger. Um, and then it and then it my big emotion was guilt that would ah. come with things. So that's was is my picture yeah um so it used to be about yeah a lot about pleasing people and then it once i learned about what my when started to find out what my boundaries were yeah um then it was a lot less but yeah guilt was Mm -hmm. the main 
the main thing that would come up time and time again. Yeah. yeah. And you would, I mean, that's exactly what I thought it was, but because yeah. of, that is probably the classic number one reason, particularly for women, but mm. also for men. Mm. Um, number one thing is I feel guilty mm. if I say no, because I might hurt their feelings, yeah. um, which is a boundary problem in its own because we're yeah. not responsible for other people's feelings. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I have, I have a very vivid memory of when sort of it's, things started to really shift for me and it was um I was probably uh probably 19 just turned or yeah probably about to turn 20 one of my best friends was turning 21 and he's still one of my best mates today and I didn't go to his 21st um for a whole host of other reasons and I really struggled with that decision for a long mm. time because I was like it's his 21st like I didn't go and I didn't make the effort and I felt really bad he didn't he didn't care at all because <laughs> we're still friends um, but I, yeah, that was a big, a big eye opener for me. Cause I was like, I can't live my life feeling guilty for things mm-hmm. like for making a decision to stay home for whatever reason I didn't go. Um, but I was like, yeah, so that was a big, like, mm. yeah, it's always been guilt, but that was like a big, like, oh gosh, I really need to work on that. Yeah. That sorted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, this, this socialization of women into martyrdom as well as that you should look after other people and do things for other people. And yeah, men, men aren't excluded out of this either, but I think it's something that, you know, particularly um, out of all my clients, the women struggle with. And I certainly um, notice the guilt. We talk about mm. mum guilt as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, the guilt of saying no to somebody because we feel responsible for their feelings or um, we feel like it's not okay to go and take care of ourselves. Yeah. That we have to martyr ourselves and self-sacrifice all our needs and wants for somebody else. And mm. yeah, that's um, it's but such also, a... you know, let's take it one step for other people too, which is the fear of then um, exclusion, you know. Yeah. So mm. yeah, I think that's happens a lot with young people it does yeah if i say no you know then i'll be off the invite list yes. so you won't be yeah. invited next yeah well exactly. it goes back yeah. into that self-esteem piece too Ooh. doesn't it then it says if i say no they might not like me mm. um so or they might think i'm boring or yeah exactly okay. yeah so and, true. and needing to you know one of the things that codependents do with low self-esteem is they seek validation from others and their fear if i say no yeah that they might think less of me or, yeah, and it's, it's not so difficult um, when you're sort of in my generation or my age, but I, I suppose people going through um, their younger times where they actually need a much larger tribe to run with. Mm-hmm. If that tribe expels them, it is devastating, mm-hmm. you know, because um, who will they run with? I mean, let's say you're, you're in a mother's group. Um, I know a lot of our listeners will, will be mothers and, you know, all fathers yeah. and you're in a group, you know, but if you say no to something, whether it's an outing or a value system or whatever, um, then the group might eject you. Mm-hmm. Then what? Then your kids are not going to be able to play with those other kids. There's a whole lot of ramifications to saying no, I think, at some point in one's life. This mm-hmm. is that, you know, I'm sort of very immune from that now. <laughs> but I'm sort of recalling back to when my kids were little, would I have said yes or no um, based on various other people in my life, you know, and mm-hmm. who might be um, affected, let's say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is always the consequence, um, you know, that, you know, people might not like us saying no. And if, you, if you're if you talking to someone who doesn't have good boundaries, they're mm. not going to be very good at hearing a boundary. Because mm. what we don't allow in ourselves, we don't allow in other people. Um, I remember, like, when I wasn't good at boundaries and I was like, what, you said no? Are you allowed to say that? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, and then as soon as I was able to say no to other people, I was so much more accepting of other people. Like, obviously, I accepted it, but I you know, maybe felt a bit resentful inside. And, you know, I was so much more accepting of other people's no's when I was able to 
allowed myself to say no to other people. So, um, yeah, yeah, boundaries. It's Mm. a big one. It's huge. Um, And they're so super important boundaries because boundaries, um, they allow us to have intimacy with other people in a way that keeps us safe. Um, So they allow us to protect ourselves. And they also allow us to protect others from us because we can be abusive we can be offensive so they well they help us contain so having boundaries help us to both protect and um contain in our relationships so so super super important um so some signs that you might be struggling with boundaries so sarah's already mentioned it it's probably the number one um is that you feel um guilty whenever you have to have a boundary and you get filled with anxiety and you probably say yes instead um so not being able to say no um trusting everyone is a boundary issue um that's not safe um letting uh someone else define you Falling in love at first sight is a boundary issue. Mm. I mean, you don't even know the person, do you? Mm. It's not safe at all. And um, I don't know if anyone's experienced being on it, like meeting someone for the first time or being on a first date, and by the end of it, either you or the other person um, has completely overshared and you know their whole life story. Um, I've been on both the receiving and the doing (laughs) end of that. Um, not noticing when someone invades your personal space or invading other personal space. I feel like COVID's changed that a lot, hasn't it? Like we're very aware of each other's personal space now, aren't we? Um, so I think that one of the gifts of COVID, if, there, if we can say there is any gifts, is that um, we're more mindful of people's personal space. Um, feeling responsible for other people, um, you know, unless it's your child that's that's appropriate but you know we feel responsible for other adults um yeah so also accepting a hug when you don't want to be hugged and having sex with someone you don't want to or having sex when you don't want to Mm. that can also be a boundary issue yeah Mm. yeah we're we're having um another guest later on in our podcast um Mm. a sex therapist actually Mm. They won't be about how to have sex, like everyone does that, but yeah. um, it will be about the, the politics of sex, really, mm. you know, and... Um, Self-esteem, too. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. So it fits it's very fits, well yeah. with what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yes. Wow. Yeah, mm. I'll be right. definitely listening to that. Whew. So, I know, this is big stuff. Um, are you ready to hear how this can be set up in childhood? Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> so, um, so, children are incredibly vulnerable and they need protecting. And um, they need adults to behave appropriately towards them and also to teach um, their kids how to contain with appropriate boundaries, respectfully teaching them, confronting their behaviours so their children learn not to offend others. Um so, but where we have a parent who's chaotic or unpredictable, um, or definitely when there's abuse, that child won't learn those healthy boundaries. So, um, there is actually two types of boundaries that I want to talk about. Um, hopefully it won't take too long. Um, but we have external and internal boundaries. So our external boundaries protect our bodies and also, um, so body to body contact, uh, contact, but also sexual contact as well. Um, so one thing that can really impact us being able to have those external boundaries is where we have physical or sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So if you've got a parent that is, or anyone or any um, person that is um, harming the child's body, then the child doesn't learn. Like the child learns, it's okay for other people to do things to my body that I don't like, that I've got no body autonomy, I've got no say. And I feel like um, any parent who um, consistently hurts their child's body, um, there's a bit of an attitude that it's my child and I can do what I want. So that's a boundary violation in itself. Like it doesn't recognize that this is actually, she might be my child, but my my child is my, their own little person and that's their body. Um, And so that child doesn't know how to protect themselves or even that it has any rights around, you know, saying no to kind of um, physical contact that they don't like. Um, you know, and a lot of things like when I, there's some other more like, um, subtle, less, um, big trauma stuff, but like forcing children to hug other people. I've caught myself doing that with my child. I'm like, why don't you give your friend a hug? You know, I'm, you know, it's rather than letting the child decide if they, they want that or not. Um, children who are smothered, like, so they have no physical space from a parent. Like you've got maybe a very enmeshed parent who's very smothering, um it doesn't get you know walks into the child's bedroom without knocking all the time takes their stuff reads through the diaries like that's all kind of external boundary violations um so um that will have um you know an impact on the child learning those physical boundaries um obviously there's also you know part of that external um, boundary problem is um the sexual abuse um, this one's kind of really difficult to recover from in terms of um, when a child is sexually abused, one of the most common defense mechanisms that they do is they um, freeze and dissociate. So they, they realize they can't run, they can't, um, f- you know, fight. So what they do is they take themselves psychologically away so they protect their mind from it. Um, and so often um, people who, uh, you know, grow up having been um, sexually abused, when they're navigating sexual experiences as an adult, they will be become very submissive, they'll comply even if they don't want to, and sometimes, you know, dissociate and freeze, which, you know, if you're in a free state, it is so hard um, to have a boundary. It's, all, it's almost impossible. Um, so you, you'd absolutely need to see someone for therapy around that so you can teach your nervous system um, to go online. There's actually um, been some really good developments around this. Um, one of the, the the people I follow, I don't know if you've heard of Clementine Ford. Um, no. She's a feminist. She, she wrote Fight Like a Girl. Um, but she's big on consent. She did a consent campaign and she says um, it's no longer okay if they, um, you know, just to respect a no. Unless it's an enthusiastic yes, not just a yes, but an enthusiastic yes, mm. then it's not consent. Treat it like a no. <laughs> so, wow. um, and then on the radio the other day, it wasn't her, but it's someone else had said, you know, a lack of saying no um, mm. is not consent, you know. And, you know, obviously think about people who might be intoxicated and mm. things like that and things happening. But, yeah, mm. if it's an enthusiastic yes. So they're teaching people to contain, aren't yeah. they, the, that boundary piece. Because um, you never know when someone might be in a trauma response or they're, just, they're feeling quite worried about having a boundary mm. because they're worried, you know, for all the above reasons that that person won't like them or they'll get rejected. Um, it's just being really mindful of other people's, you know, kind of responses. So I thought that was a huge mm. development. And I think we've come a long way since the Me Too kind of movement 
around um, sexual boundaries and, and things like that. So, um, yes, the next, um, so that was the external boundary. The next boundary, which is a bit more tricky because you can't quite see it, is the internal boundaries. So that protects us from our, um, uh, from, from other people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So, um, if you don't have, um, the internal boundaries, um, for starters, what you might do is you you really struggle not feeling responsible for other people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. You you uh, you know you feel that guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, you also might blame other people for your thoughts, feelings, and behavior. You know you you were late. You made me feel so important. You know like so you blame other people for your thoughts and feelings. Um, when there's abuse uh, growing up, you know a, a common thing, particularly um, in domestic abuse, um, there's actually a book called. Uh, look what you made me do um, or see what you made me do um, which is about domestic abuse and that is like what what often happens is the abuser blames the victim for yeah. their own behaviors mm-hmm. so having good internal boundaries helps you recognize actually I'm not responsible for your behaviors either you know that's that's mm-hmm. your choice yeah it brings to mind um a popular parenting phrase when my kids were growing up that I sort of felt really queasy about, you know, when people around me were saying to their little kids, oh, mummy um, will be really happy mm. if you did this. So I'm thinking, whoa. Yeah. So Making the child feel responsible for yeah, mum's happiness. Yeah, I always thought, why Why do people say that? You know, and the person who I was you know, with said, oh, well, it just gives them some purpose for doing what they're doing. I'm thinking, well... That's only a very shortcut. That's mm. not going to go very well in the future. But um, that was a that was a style. That was a parenting yeah. style. Yeah, uh, and I, I do hear it, um, and sometimes I have to stop myself from saying stuff. You know, like uh, around doing that, like, oh, you know, you made me really sad. Oh no, I can't say that. No, when you did that, well, I felt sad. You know, you don't want to blame yeah. a ch- or make a child feel responsible that they're uh, responsible for your feelings or anything like that. Yeah, that's a very knowledgeable person mm. speaking, though, Jules. You know, I mean, this is. You know, like yeah. you're a professional in this area, I can't imagine how many times we would hear that in the practice. Yeah, but it, I think it goes back to what Jules said at the very beginning. It's that it's not that you think, well, and we know that most parents are just doing the best they can with the tools they have, and they're yeah. not thinking about the consequence of a statement like that. That's right. Because I'm thinking, you know, we've yeah, how many times have we we hear it probably every day walking down the street? You know, mummy mm-hmm. would like it if you went and picked up your scooter off the pathway. Like you probably probably hear it five thousand times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's the intention of the harm that that type of comment can mm. make, but it is yeah. just that, I guess, awareness and, yeah. and helping our parents and our, um, you know, the people in our communities that we see day to day understand mm-hmm. that consequence. And a very similar example comes to mind, Lillian, you mentioned it before, is that instead of saying to a child, no, don't do that or don't do it that way, mm-hmm. instead say, let's do it this way, mm-hmm. giving them the positive the do instruction. Statement, yeah. yeah, the do statement. Like rather than don't fall, just say, yeah. well, hold on, hold on safely, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so um, internal, um, thoughts, feelings and behaviours. Yeah. How does one help a child put up, well, you know, figure out what those boundaries are then? Um, I feel like the way the way you communicate to your child is a big one of that. Um, so you know, not uh, being careful about the language that you use around it. You know, letting them know that 
you know, they're, they're not responsible. Like, I think, you know, some phrases, pick up your scooter, mummy will like, but that's absolutely fine. But saying, you kids are driving me insane, I can't cope mm. because of what you're doing. Mm. Those are the kind of stuff that, you know, well, maybe you're a little bit under-resourced and you need a little bit of support <laughs> outside. Um, you know, I think that's, yeah. the, that's the important language that we need to use around our children so they learn that yeah. separation. Um, and teaching your kid, you know, when your kid goes, well, Tommy made me do it, you know, well, no, you're in control of your behaviors, you know, like you kind of, you need to kind of own that, you know, also supporting them to do that as well. There's such, there's so funny how they just um, parrot what we do and model what we do. So if we're modeling, if we're role modeling good boundaries, then, um, you know, our kids pick up on that, you know, you just see it so often. Um, how they just do I was driving my car and I stopped to let these this dad and his kid you know um, cross the road and the dad waved and the kid looked at the dad and then he waved at me and I was like this is the this is a parent role modeling good mm-hmm. behavior and the kids just picked it up like that you yeah. know monkey yeah. see monkey do right? right yeah not so hard is it yeah, yeah so I think if we're mm. role modeling behaviors and and not you know blaming our kids um, and we're gonna have slip-ups by the way we're gonna be mm. imperfect um, and that's okay as long as we get back and go, I'm really sorry. You weren't responsible for my... I was just having a bad day. Mm. You know, we do that enough. We tell them, you know, that they're not responsible. Um, yeah. Mm. So to fix all that, Jules. <laughs> well, well, can I mention one more thing yeah, about... Okay. Because this is a big thing that gets in the way of boundaries. Yep. Um, and have you heard of the fawn response? Yes. You have. Yes. So wow. one of the big survival responses that gets in the way of having healthy boundaries, but it's absolutely essential for surviving particularly when there's abuse in the household is um there's the fight flight freeze and you've got the fawn response so the fawn response is when you go and you um go placate and you appease the parent to help dial down the the abuse so you be like super agreeable you're also really hyper aware of their emotions so kids who have like someone with uh rage issues they're so you know they can hear when their parent is like being a bit heavy-handed with the dishwasher, you know, packing the dishwasher. Like, mm-hmm. they're super hyper-vigilant, um, which also means that they let other people's emotions really impact them because they had to be hyper-vigilant. Um, and so what he will do will appease and, you know, really placate the parent, which is actually counterintuitive to having boundaries, right? We don't yeah. have boundaries. Mm-hmm. If a child was to step up and say, hey, mate, you know, what you're doing is really inappropriate, that's probably going to end up in them getting really hurt. Mm -hmm. So particularly if you've got like a narcissistic rageaholic in your household. Um, So you really, that that appeasing, you know, wanting to people please, as you said before, Mm -hmm. Sarah, as well, that's another thing that gets in the way of boundaries. When I was working at a, at a, a treatment center and I had to enforce rules, you know, as part there were therapeutic boundaries that we had, um, like, you know, clients sneaking out and, and smoking or missing lectures. I used to go like this. This is how my boundaries were. Hi, uh, I'm so sorry, but you're not supposed to be smoking. Oh, is it okay if I ask you to get up to the lecture? So sorry to interrupt. I'm really sorry. I used to do, I was, it was ridiculous, right? What was I doing? I was fawning them. I was trying to stay safe. My old childhood wounds are getting triggered because here's this person breaking the rules and I'm having it. My boss says I have to reinforce them. And um, I'm fawning them so I can keep safe. That's what I'm doing. Even though I'm like, okay, now I'm in an adult body. I'm allowed to do this as part of my job. I have a team of people who will support me if anything goes awry. Um, 
But yeah, this is where I went really bad. I, and I still have to stop myself from apologizing for having very appropriate boundaries sometimes. Um, well, I think Deb Dana does a really good um, talk on it. Right. Uh, and a great video too, I think, that mm-hmm. she's put on with um, it happening in the animal world. Ah. You know, actually um, sort of um, rabbits or deer or whoever the, the prey mm-hmm. is completely fawning by actually playing dead. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Anyway, it's, oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's a very clever video on um, extreme fawning. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. But well, they definitely do it in, like, in the in the ape family they mm. do it. They put their heads down. They have the shame mm. response. And, I mean, my dogs do it every time I catch them stealing food off my kid's plate. <laughs> he puts his little ears down and his head down and he's, like, so doing cute. the, sorry, yeah. please yeah. don't, you know. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. But, um, and it works. So I'm like, I can't be angry at you. <laughs> so we've talked a long time. Yeah. Do you want to give us a um, sort of um, what we do then to, to deal with this? Oh, yes. Okay. Then we can um, pause. Yes. Yeah. So um, so how do we recover from having, um, you know, impaired boundaries or walls instead of boundaries? Mm. Um, so one of the things that we need to do um, is start listening to your anger. So, you know, in a dysfunctional family, anger is not safe. Um, Your anger is very important. It tells you usually when someone's transgressing your boundaries and when your needs aren't being met in a relationship. And anger gives us the strength. Like the the gift of anger is it gives us strength. It gives us power. It's a very very powerful emotion. Mm -hmm. So it often motivates, like all our feelings have functions, really motivates us to to do that. do it when your anger's about mm, a five. If you're at a, at a ten, you're gonna it's gonna come out in rage. So do your boundary um, when it's about a five, and start with safe people. You know you don't want to have your first experience of saying no um, met with someone who's not very good at hearing a boundary. So do it with a friend. Do it with simple things. Don't do what your friend did and say say no to everything and send back dishes. But like you know just start saying no to going out once with a friend or. Yeah. And then work up to the bigger ones, like having boundaries with your boss around not working overtime or the weekend and things like that. Um, so that's always a good practice um, to to do. Um, I like the phrase as well, um, let me get back to you on that one. Mm-hmm. Because it buys you time. Um, so sometimes I don't even know what my boundary is. I'm like, do I want it? I don't know. Oh, gosh. And then I say yes, because I, ha- I don't actually know what it is. So let me get back to you on that. Gives you time to think about if that's something that you want or don't want. And it also gives you time to formulate what your boundary will sound like. You know, so practicing sometimes in the in front of the mirror, how to say no in a way that is, you know, comes across well, that will be received well is um is a really good one. You know, I've got clients write, writing their boundaries mm-hmm. down to their friends, practicing in therapy and then going and doing it. So um there's some good ways. Mm. A good start. Yeah. Boundaries. Excellent. Cool. Amazing. Well, we might hit pause. Oh, yes. And come back. <laughs> a quick disclaimer. These episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment, or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.